The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Over the next uh, months and so on, in the book of Acts, the goal is not to go all the way through the book of Acts in one go. What we'll do is go to Acts chapter 6 and probably verse 7, which is um, not quite a quarter of it. And what we'll do is we'll do a volume in Acts, we'll do a little bit of study in Acts, and we'll go over to probably the book of Genesis and do a couple of chapters there in Genesis as well, and then come back. So Acts chapter 1, we're going to read down to verse 11. I'm reading from an ESV translation in case uh, you're wondering. Acts chapter 1, the Bible says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he, sorry, behold, sorry, let's read verse 10 again. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's ask for God's blessing again, shall we? Loving Father, we come before you again and we have the word of God open before us. And Father, it is our desire that the Spirit of God would teach us and lead us into all truth. And Father, again, we ask that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would have freedom to take the words of Scripture to convict, to encourage, to rebuke, to train, to build up. Father, that we might, each of us, be fully equipped for every good work that you have for us to do. Father, we ask you for your help. We plead with you, O God, for your blessing, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. We... (coughs) Sorry. We have been given a great commission, and as we saw in the last couple of weeks, that commission is set into the context of our relationship to Christ as his disciples. 
Now, those two messages we preached weren't just fillers between series. I wanted us to see them and see that the unfinished task we face is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them. But that unfinished task is set into the context of our being disciples in living, active relationship with Christ. Noble Park, that area outside there, needs to hear the good news of salvation. The neighbors living right around us do not know the gospel. This is no longer the 1960s where every kid living in the district heard the Bible read in school. It's not the 1960s where every kid went to Sunday school and most families were involved in some form of Christian church, even if only by religious practice. The men, the women, the families living in our neighborhoods do not know the gospel. But God in his gracious providence is bringing the nations to us. All you have to do is walk down the street of Noble Park and look around. You'll see men and women from every different nation and corner of the world. He's bringing the nations to us. They do not know the gospel and they desperately need to hear the gospel message. Brothers and sisters, our attitude must be like Paul's. And if I can paraphrase his words from Romans in the plural for our context, I would say this. We are under obligation to Jews and Greeks, to Asians and Indians, to Europeans, to Africans, to all nations, both to the wise and the foolish. And so we are eager. We must be eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Noble Park or wherever you live, for we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That needs to be our attitude. That needs to be the desire of our hearts to see the gospel go forth. We've been given a great commission. I said it before, I say it again. We are not here to just come to church on Sunday mornings and enjoy a country club style of Christianity. Coming and getting something and going home. Your church is done. You can carry on with the week any way we choose. We never leave the church. Because the church is not this building. It's you and I as individual disciples and believers in Jesus Christ. We are his witnesses, as he said in verse 8 there. The gospel has gone out from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and it's reaching around to the ends of the earth, which we know is Australia, right? This this is as far as it goes. It's reaching. It's reaching out. But the work, the task is not yet finished. God did not bring us here to this country, to your neighborhood, to this church, just so you could have a better life. So many people want to come to Australia and Canada and other places in the world, England, so they can have a better life. But God didn't bring us here to just have a better life. He didn't even bring us here to have a better life. He brought us here as he led us as his disciples so that we could be busy in a relationship of discipleship with him, which includes going out and making disciples of all the nations. Now, I want us to look for a time at Acts to see what and how we are called to this task. I want us to see that this task, that Christ is continuing through us, it's a spirit-empowered task. 
It's a task to spread the gospel of God's salvation to all peoples of all nations. The nations need to hear that there is salvation for them through Jesus' life and death and resurrection to all who repent and believe the gospel. Well, to give us a little introduction to the book of Acts... Uh, both Luke's Gospel and Acts were both written by the same author. They're addressed to the same man or dedicated to the same person. His name is Theophilus. And they each contain a part of the same message. Okay, so Luke and Acts, if you like, are two volumes of the same book. They have the same overall central message. Luke and Acts are considered written by a man named Dr. Luke. Uh, Luke's authorship is very well and very widely accepted. There's always some liberal scholar who will say it wasn't Luke, it was somebody else, but liberal scholars love to argue with what everybody else sees as fairly clear and obvious. But his authorship is accepted. Luke was the traveling partner of Paul. As you read through the book of Acts, and you should, I encourage you, over the next couple of months, make it part of your reading practice day by day to work your way through the book of Acts you're going to come across some narrative sections where it says, we, we, and we. And what he means is, it's us. It's Paul and Luke traveling together. Uh, both Luke and Acts were both written and dedicated to Theophilus. Some people try to say that Theophilus is just a made-up person that represents the readership. No, there's no proof whatsoever that that's the case. Theophilus is, by every reason, a legitimate person who was the recipient or possibly even the one who paid the costs for the book to be written and reproduced, copied out. He's not an imaginary person. And Luke writes his books, both Luke and Acts, primarily to Gentile Christians and with an obvious consideration for uh, Gentile unbelievers. Both Luke and Acts are clearly evangelistic. They describe the gospel, and they describe the gospel being spread, and the gospel is repeated a number of times in the, the uh, speeches and sermons of the book of Acts. Luke writes his gospel to take us from John the Baptist and Jesus' birth all the way to Jesus' ascension. And that's kind of the midpoint of Jesus' ministry. For example, take your Bibles, flip back to Luke 24 and verse the last couple of verses, verses 50 to 53. I find it really fascinating that in God's providence and as it, uh, the Bibles were assembled and the canons were compiled, that the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are put together and then John goes in between Luke and Acts. I think it's really remarkable. You say, why is that? Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what they call the synoptic gospels, meaning that they have a very similar theme and content, and they're all discussing Jesus with a slightly more emphasis on his humanity. He is the king, which humans can be kings, as well as Jesus is the king of kings. They discuss the suffering servant. Humans can be servants, and Jesus is the suffering servant. Luke discusses Jesus, the Son of Man, but John emphasizes Jesus, the Son of God. So if you think about it for a second, Luke takes us from his birth all the way up to his ascension. They put the gospel of the Son of God right between, and then Acts continues from his ascension on in his continuing ministry through the Holy Spirit and his disciples. So I thought it was kind of neat the way that God worked it out and the arrangement of the books, because we would think if Luke brought, wrote both of them, then we should just put them side by side. 
But God in his providence put John, the gospel of the Son of God, right the middle point, right when Luke starts to talk about Jesus' ascension back to his father. Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. The Bible says this, Then he, that's Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. That's the birth. That's his ascension. Then if you go over to Luke 1, and we read that long passage there. And you see there how he is taken up from them. Luke kind of recaps the instructions that he gave to his apostle. And then he's taken up from them. He gives them some promises and so on. But Luke's, oh sorry, Christ's ascension is a very clear dividing point between those two volumes that Luke wrote. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not that Luke wrote one long book and somebody came along with a pair of scissors and went, oh, we'll cut it right here into two. That's not what it is. He actually wrote it as two volumes of the book, separate. Uh, scholars would say that Luke was written probably around 60 A.D. and Acts was written probably around 62 A.D., right shortly before uh, Paul was martyred. So they're written as two volumes, but there's a very clear strong connection between the two of them, besides the fact that Luke is the author. So what is the message of the book, the books, or the book, if you like, of Luke and Acts? Every Bible book has a clear, overarching message. Okay, for example, uh, I'll try Romans. The Romans is the gospel of God's righteousness revealed from saving faith to sanctifying faith for the just shall live by faith. That's kind of Paul's message of Romans in a nutshell, right? So also, Matthew, Jesus Christ is the king of kings and the teacher of his disciples in the book of Matthew. Mark, we said a minute ago, it's the story of Jesus, the suffering servant, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And Luke's message is that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost. And Luke does something that the other Gospels doesn't do, don't do. He emphasizes the fact of all nations, okay? So if you got your little uh, note sheet there, you can follow along. I've given you kind of the message of the book of Luke of Acts, and it's like this. God's salvation is available for all the nations through Christ's life, death, and resurrection to everyone who repents of sin and believes the gospel. That's kind of the nutshell message of the book of Luke and Acts. Volume 1, Luke's Gospel, primarily deals and describes with the salvation that Christ accomplished by his life and his death and his resurrection. And then Volume 2, Acts of the Apostles, primarily describes the message of salvation that Christ's spreading to all the nations through the Holy Spirit and by his apostles and then later disciples like you and I. Because we are studying the second book, Okay, we've been picking up on the second volume. We haven't touched volume one yet. Although, if you come to the Wednesday night Bible study, uh, when Luke, uh, Wes is working on Isaiah right now, and the end of the month when we start again uh, with my term, we'll probably take up the book of Luke, and we'll start starting through the book of Luke to kind of go alongside of our study in Acts. So we're starting in the middle, second volume. I want us to see kind of the 
trajectory of Luke's message as it begins in his gospel and then continues into the Acts of the Apostles. So if you like, what I'm doing this morning is just taking uh, verse number one and kind of unpacking one simple phrase when he says, all that Jesus began to do and teach. So that's really what we're focusing on today. And that beginning part is in Luke's gospel. So we'll kind of work our way through Luke's gospel. And next week we'll dive into the book of Acts and carry on the story. So first of all, God's salvation that Luke describes was prepared and promised by God. At the very beginning of Luke's gospel, the message of God's salvation was, was declared or summarized in Simeon's words. So if you want to take your Bible and flip back to Luke 2 and verses 29 to 32. You can see his words there. Luke 2 verses 29 to 32. And the Bible says this, this is the, the words of Simeon as he's come into the temple. He takes the, the baby Jesus up in his arms and he blesses God. And verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your words. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. God has prepared this salvation. God prepared in the past a salvation for all peoples. He makes that mention for the Gentiles. And then at the end, he makes mention of the Jews as well. So God's salvation that Luke is describing is one that was prepared, which means it was gotten ready. It was prepared beforehand. It's kind of like when you're, oh, I know, um, my sister-in-law, Diana, and my brother-in-law, Dave, are here. And we were, they would remember going to Mom and Dad Chandler's house. And Mom Chandler, before we left for church in the morning, she'd rush around like mad. And she'd get the roast dinner prepared. Because at the Chandler home, Sunday after church was roast beef dinner. And she'd get it all prepared. And she'd put all everything right in there, turn the oven on to low. And we head off to church. And you'd come back and you'd open the door. And that smell would kind of hit you as you came out in the door. This beautiful roast beef dinner. I'm getting hungry thinking about it. <laughs> and you go in the door. And what she had done is she had prepared ahead of time. And so that when we got home from church, it was ready for us to taste and enjoy. Except for that one tragic morning when we opened the door and there was no smell and she'd forgotten to turn the, the oven on. So it was, it was cold meat for dinner. <laughs> but I don't know what she did at that point. But listen, that's what he's saying here. God prepared a salvation for all the nations, including the Gentiles and the Jews together. And it's no so neat that he's writing to a Gentile audience because he wants them to know that the salvation that they have is not an afterthought. It was decided and planned and prepared from the very beginning. In other words, this salvation that God was making is and has always been perfectly suited to all the nations, not just the Jews. And there was a whole group of the Jews that had the idea that it was just for them. It wasn't for the Gentiles. And as Luke is writing, and he's worked with Paul and all of his ministry through all those Gentile countries, if you watch a map... And see how Paul's journeys go? They start in Jerusalem and they go north and I believe it's west. They head up towards Rome and the gospel makes its way. And as he's writing that book to give to those Gentile audiences, he wants them to know, listen, the salvation that you have was planned and prepared by God way back in times past. Not only that, 
This salvation was promised by God. There are Old Testament prophecies and writings that Luke recalls. In fact, in his books, there's 21 references to the Old Testament scriptures. And you see, why would Luke do that? He's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. Why does he keep quoting the Old Testament? It seems strange to us, but Luke is showing them that their salvation was always in the mind of God. It was revealed to the Jews, even in the Old Testament times. And we know from a study in December in Matthew chapter 1, that where Abraham received the promise that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Paul takes that verse in Galatians 3 and says, listen, he's speaking about Christ and the gospel going to all the nations. We're reminded that God planned, and He didn't just plan it, He promised it. He gave His Word. If you remember, I'm talking about the covenants, and how God, when He made a covenant, He literally bound Himself to keep His Word in a blood oath. And the book of Luke has some great statements about Scripture being fulfilled. For example, Luke 4, verses 18 to 21. Know the story? Jesus goes into the synagogue and he sits down and they give him the scroll of the book of Isaiah. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolls up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke is recording for us that the Old Testament promises were made by God back then and they were fulfilled. Christ, there's more. Luke 18.31, taking the twelve, he sat down, to. he said to them, sorry, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He's telling his Gentile audiences that the crucifixion wasn't a tragic mistake. It wasn't something that nobody had thought of and took Jesus by surprise. He knew full well what was going to happen to him. It was a salvation that was promised by God even in the Old Testament. God's salvation of his people was not an afterthought. It wasn't a plan B. God's salvation was prepared and promised so that his coming and dying was God keeping his covenant promises to his people. If you go to Peter's sermon on Pentecost morning, you know what he does? He quotes Joel 2 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Just time out for a second. When you read the books of the Bible especially the histories and the narratives like the Gospels and Acts and so on, don't get in your mind that you're watching like reality TV in a book. You're not watching something that the authors, the directors, the characters have no idea what's going on. You're reading something that is a book written by a man who has taken a massive scope of material and he has carefully selected stories and statements and phrases, and he's put them all together, and he's arranged them in such a way to tell a message. So when Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, records those speeches and sermons in Acts, those gospel speeches, the Spirit of God is inspiring him to remember the things that were said and record them with a specific purpose in the people he's writing to. Don't forget... 
They're letters written by men under the inspiration of God, both to its original audience and to us. So Luke uses those stories and puts those scriptures in there because he's not just telling a story, he's making a point, right? God kept his promises. The gospel of God's salvation was promised and God in the Lord Jesus Christ kept those promises by his suffering and dying. We'll see it in a second. Secondly, God's salvation was obtained or purchased by Christ. In Luke 19 and verse 10, the Bible says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then in Luke 15, Jesus tells all those lost parables, lost coin and lost son and so on. And Jesus is describing for us the necessity, the need of a sinner to be saved. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, but now I see. John Newton wrote those words. He understood what Jesus was saying in those lost parables. Then in Luke 22 to 24, it describes Jesus purchasing our salvation with his own lifeblood. In Luke 22, Jesus' enemies plotted against him, but he knew it. In Luke 22, also, Judas, one of his disciples, agrees to betray Jesus, and Jesus knew ahead of time, and he even announced it to them. In Luke 22, again, Jesus celebrates the Passover and he institutes the Lord's Supper. He is the Lamb of God. Just think about that for a second. Just put aside and think about that. We've been singing about the Lamb of God and talking about the Lamb of God all through the service so far. Jesus is sitting there with, or not sitting, lying there with his disciples around the table. And they're partaking of the Passover feast and remembering how God had rescued his people by passing over them in the... uh, Egypt so many years ago. And halfway through that feast, he stops and he institutes a new feast and he shows no longer is it meat like that that you remember as the Passover lamb. He is now the new Passover lamb. He is the one who will go that night and be arrested and tried and scourged and crucified. He is the lamb of God for the salvation of sinners. He institutes the Passover. Luke 22, again, he's betrayed and arrested at night in darkness. His disciples all abandon him. He's denied by Peter three times. He's mocked and he's tried by an illegal counsel. He's declared innocent by Pilate and then the same man, two seconds later, condemns him to die. That's amazing. And you say, what's going on? And the wheels come off the wagons, everything gone pear-shaped? No, the reality is that God has got his plan and is working it out perfectly. And Jesus is doing exactly what he knew he would do. He would go through that terrible time that he might rescue and save his people. The Bible describes how he is scourged and paraded through the streets as a common criminal. Over top of his head is the sign written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And he's crucified between two thieves. He dies. And the centurion standing at the foot of his cross looks up and says, Surely this was the Son of God. And he declares him innocent of all charges. And this Roman soldiers are so concerned to do the job properly, they come along and one of them says, Make sure he's dead. He takes his spear point in a very careful practice maneuver. He pushes that spear point up into the, between his ribs. And the spear point punctures that sack that surrounds the heart. And out of Jesus' side flows blood and water, living proof that he is physically dead. But also a beautiful picture for us. 
That with His blood, our consciences are washed clean. And with the water, we are made new. We're given new life in Jesus' blood. And the great statements are the book of Hebrews. I missed it for years. Was that the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse the conscience from sin. That must take place only with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you're sitting here this morning. Some of you have come into church for years. Sat under hours and hours and hours of preaching. Sung hymn after hymn after hymn after hymn. But here's the question. Are you saved? Do you know what it means to be rescued from the imminent wrath of Almighty God? Jesus didn't come to just teach us a lot of good things to remember. He didn't come to give us great sayings to hang on to and put on our wall or post on Facebook. He came to suffer and to die to set us free from the wrath of Almighty God. Our salvation had to be purchased at a great cost. You and I have sinned against the almighty, absolutely holy God. He will not accept into his presence any that are sinners. To sin is to disobey God's command. You say, I'm not that bad. I haven't broken that many commands. Let me ask you this. One of the greatest commands. I'll give you one great command that God made. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. Not one person living and breathing, save the Lord Jesus himself, has ever kept that command. We've all disobeyed it. Every single one of us down, the last person to ever be born, will have disobeyed that command. We failed there. And that failure, that disobedience is active rebellion against God. And our failure, our disobedience does not mildly annoy God. I get so well, bent out of shape when I hear gospel preachers talking about how God is somewhat indifferent to their sin. Like he doesn't, well, you know, kind of sort of shrug. No. You read the scriptures. You contemplate and meditate on the scenes around the cross. And what you have to get a hold of is this, that God is absolutely furious with us. I think I've told you before in the scene in the garden when God comes and he speaks to Adam from a distance, where are you? In the Hebrew, there's, a, there's an amazing phrase in the Hebrew. It's very difficult to translate. We had a, a scholar do it for us. He said basically what it means is when you the idea of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, it's more like God was furiously rushing back and forth, the wind of the Spirit, in amongst the trees. There was anger and outrage that his people had disobeyed him. God is angry. And our salvation was not purchased at a small cost. It was purchased at the greatest cost of all. Isaiah wrote these great words in Isaiah 12, that although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. That's the salvation that we're talking. That's the salvation that Christ came to accomplish on your behalf and mine. Christ exhausted the full fury of God's anger. He has none left for those who will repent and believe the gospel. But it doesn't end there. In his last words to disciples recorded in Luke's gospel, Jesus connects and ties together the promise of God in Scripture, his death on the cross, their preaching the gospel, and the scope of it to all nations. Listen again. 
This is Luke 24, verses 44 to 49. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. Then he, that's Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. He's tying it all together. You see that? It's the promise of God, everything written about me. Secondly, it's that Christ should suffer. That was our salvation purchase. Thirdly, that it should be proclaimed. Repentance for forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed. Where to? All the nations. God had it in his mind back outside the Garden of Eden. He had it in his mind when he made the promise to Abraham. He had it in his mind when he sent Jesus. He had it in his mind as Jesus spoke those things. Remember, the message of the one book of Luke and Acts is simply this. God's salvation is available for all the nations through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It's available to everyone who repents of sin and believes the gospel. Luke's gospel describes the salvation that Christ accomplished by his life and death. And now, as we're standing on the brink of Acts, it takes a different step. It's now the gospel of God's salvation to be proclaimed, right? So it was planned and prepared. It was purchased by Christ, and it was proclaimed to all the nations. No, I don't like alliteration, but there you go. There's four Ps or five Ps in, in the sermon notes there. It was planned and prepared. It was purchased, and now it's to be proclaimed. That's God's last step. Notice again. I said before that Luke and Acts divides on the ascension point. And it says there in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, In the first book of Acts, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I tripped over that. So why does it say he began to do it? Should it say that he taught and did? Shouldn't it say that as a completed action? No, he says, Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and began to teach. And what we have to get in our minds is this. Jesus' earthly ministry, when he hung on the cross, remember? And he said, it's finished. He had finished everything that God had given him to do. He had obeyed it all absolutely perfectly. There was nothing left undone or half done. He did it all perfectly. But that doesn't mean that his ministry in its entirety was finished. His earthly ministry was finished. And now as we start the book of Acts... His ministry from heaven through the Holy Spirit is continuing on, right? So there's a work left to be done. Christ is still actively ministering the gospel of salvation. And there's so much more I want to say that, but I want to wrap it up. The Gospel of Luke describes all that Christ began to do and teach. The book of Acts describes all that Jesus continued to do, ministering God's salvation to all nations through the Holy Spirit by the apostles and disciples to all those who are willing to repent and believe. But, brothers and sisters, here is the question. Because everything I've said so far is information out there. Now I want to bring it right home and land it on us. 
For those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, are we striving in the power of the Holy Spirit, excuse me, to obey His command at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts to be His witnesses? I said it before, I'll say it again. This is not a country club, folks. This is not a place that we come every Sunday morning to do our religious duty, to tick a box and go home and carry on as if nothing happened. Brothers and sisters, we never leave the church. The reality is we, it's a body. It's a living thing. It has a living head. And he has given us instructions and commands. He's commanded us to walk with Him and to know Him and to love Him. That relationship, like I've been saying for the last couple of weeks, that relationship with Christ as His disciples is absolutely key and it's foundational. We cannot have, cannot carry out the commands of Christ if we're not in an active living relationship with Christ. But listen, here's the other half of it. We cannot call ourselves disciples and followers of Christ if we are not practicing obedience to Christ. That's the reality. Disciple, you ever notice the word disciple looks a lot like the word discipline? It's one placed underneath the governing, controlling hand of a master. It's one who submits himself to the will of his master and does as his master directs. And God has given us a command. He's made promises to us. We will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us. Now we know there's a difference between them and our experience of salvation. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But the point of it is that we will be His witnesses. We will take the gospel everywhere we go. Go on the streets of Noble Park. You go into an office building. You go into a schoolroom. You go into a tradie workshop or a tradie job site. Wherever it is that God has put you, you are as part of the church when you go there, and you go there as witnesses of Jesus Christ to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's for those of us who know the Lord. And I'm not just challenging and pointing the finger at all of you. I'm pointing the fingers at me. Because I know how, how easy I find it to settle into my routine and come and go and do my thing. And I pass people all the time. And I wonder to myself, does that person know the Lord? Does that person ever heard the gospel? How easy to walk up and someone just put a gospel tract in their hand and say, Hey, have you ever considered this? For some people, God bless dear brother Harold. I love watching him when we go out and do evangelism. He'll go and talk to anybody. Five Construction workers are all four times his size, and he's standing there telling them the gospel. God bless him. He has a gift in that. But for some of us, that's a hard thing to do, to walk up and put a tract in someone's hand and just say, here is the message of the gospel. Give some thought to this. You'll be amazed what God can do with a little paper tract. I have a cousin who knows the Lord because somebody left a Bible tract on the, on the bathroom counter. And she walked in and picked it up. And she showed it to me years later. It was almost a rag, just tattered. She'd read it and reread it and reread it so many times she'd worn it out. She came to know Christ and walked out of the exclusive brethren cult, an absolute phenomenon for them, because somebody put a tract out. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a task yet unfinished to go and take the gospel to all nations. And dare I say, we've been a bit lazy about it, so God has stepped up and He has brought the nations to our doorstep and said they're right here. Preach the gospel, folks. 
But for those of us who don't know, I want you to know with an absolute certainty that God provided a salvation, a rescue from His wrath, which is surely to come. And he stands this morning and he proclaims, repent and believe the gospel. Because if you refuse to repent and you refuse to believe the gospel, that disobedient step will land you in hell for eternity. Turn around, look up and see the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Plead with him that his blood might wash your sin away. Learn to hate your sin. Listen to someone describing poor preaching of the gospel. He said, poor preaching of the gospel goes like this. Do you want to go to heaven? To which everybody says, yeah, of course I do. Fantastic. Just believe this simple thing. Pray this little prayer and you can go to heaven. That's not the gospel at all. Do you hate your sin? Oh, that's a different question. Because your sin is what separates you from God. Your sin is what makes Him angry. Your sin is why Jesus had to come and walk this earth and go all the way to a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem and suffer and die. It's your sin and God's holiness that demanded a just payment for sin. God is not unjust in the way He saves us. He is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in God. Paul says in Romans 3. So if you're sitting in this room and you know deep down in your own heart that you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I assure you on the authority of Scripture, if you refuse to repent of sin and trust Christ, you will go to hell under the judgment of God. That's not a very nice thing to say, you know. I thought you were supposed to make me feel good. No, I'm not. That's not my job. It'll never be my job. My job is to make sure you know the truth. Because when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And you know what it means to have life and have it abundantly. You know what it means to walk with the living God as your Savior and know the joy of your salvation. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we'll sing the benediction together.